thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. Welcome to this uh, ongoing study on physics. Um, Tonight, we're going to take a look at the theory of relativity. And the reason why we want to do that, uh, there are two folds. Number one, it it provides us with an elegant uh, way of reconciling the text of Genesis with the modern account, modern scientific account of the world. And number two, I am sure many of you know that the the theory of relativity has been used to undermine morality or authority. The notion being, well, since things are relative, your truths and my truth are relative, your truth equals my truth, let's not argue about it, let's be open-minded and tolerant, and just accept the fact that your truth is as good as mine, and go hand to hand to hell. Well, that's the part we don't say, but there's an implication. In particular, I'd like to to remind all of us that it is not enough for us to say, well, you know, I'm a Catholic. I believe what the Catholic Church teaches for me. But it's okay if you, non-Catholic, do not believe them. See you in heaven. Not going to work. Because if you deny, if you and I deny the necessity of the Catholic Church for salvation, we just about denied the faith. There cannot be any other way by which a man is saved other than by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore, through his church. That's the central dogma, that's the central teaching of our faith. We cannot just kind of, you know, wave our hands and say it's okay. Now, it doesn't mean that we're going to beat somebody with a two-by-four, nor it means that we're going to ignore the issue and say nothing. We always have to first ask our guardian angel to prepare us and help us to say what we have to say in the context so that we can help them. Yet, we should always firmly point, like a compass, we're always pointing to heaven and helping people get there. This is very important, right? But that can only happen when we are deeply convinced, not just convinced, in love with the church, in love with the church. The church is not a club. It's not a membership issue. It's not being a member of the church like you're a member of a sports club. It's being in love, loving the church and seeing the church the way Christ sees her. And when you start seeing the church this way, all these issues are dispelled. 
becomes obvious. It'd be like a man married to a beautiful woman, and there's this other man arguing with him about his wife. He's not going to argue. She's beautiful. What are you talking about? I know her personally. You know, we speak of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, you want to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? You better have a personal relationship with His church. Okay? That's the door to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Through His church. So, the theory of relativity undermines... The theory of relativity does not undermine the faith, as I'm going to show you. The way it is being spun undermines this notion of absolute morality. And I'm going to show you that the theory of relativity says nothing of the sort. It actually says quite the opposite. So what I'm going to do tonight is walk you through uh, some truth of physics in sort of of three acts. Act number one, we're going to talk about gravity, the law of gravity. Act number two, we're going to talk about electromagnetism. Remember, I had mentioned those laws last time, or the four forces, gravity being one, electromagnetism being the other. Well, we're going to talk about those. And then act number three is Einstein's theory of relativity. What is really important here, and I want, to, I want you to pay attention to this, is that this evolution that led to the theory of relativity did not happen by a bunch of rabid scientists trying to undermine the faith. The church was the last thing on their mind. They were dealing with problems of physics. Those were not guys sitting there trying to prove the church wrong. They did not have a theological or a philosophical uh, bias or intention. Unlike some of the more modern theories that we hear these days. For instance, you will, I will touch upon a cosmological theory that speaks of multiverse. So this is not the only universe we have. There are an infinite number of universes. This one happens to be one of them. And those universes actually spring into existence out of nothing due to quantum theory. Well, why would some scientists concoct such a theory which we cannot test? How do you test the existence of another universe? We cannot test it, so you can't back it by facts. Why are they writing thick books on that? Actually, PhD thesis in physics on that subject. Because they are driven by an intention, which, and that intention is to say, there is no God. See, if there are an infinite number of universes, then the odds of one of them carrying life randomly becomes very reasonable. And then you don't need a God. Do you understand? On the other end of the spectrum, you have cosmology theories today that says that the universe is 5,000 years old or 6,000 years old. It's called young earth theory, which is trying to sort of take the history of the universe and get it to fit in the literal reading of the book of Genesis. Why are they doing that? Because they also have a bias. When you ask them, how do you explain the fact that the universe seems to be so big? 13.7 billion years. This is how far we can go and see where the galaxies are. Their answer is, because the speed of light, the speed of light has been decelerating. Right? The intention behind this is that the laws of physics are not constant. The laws of physics are not constant. Well, if the laws of physics were not constant in the past, why are they constant now? 
What would they be constant in the future? What does that mean? It means that the universe becomes opaque. We cannot formulate universal laws that apply across time and space. And what kind of reflection does this have on God? Does the universe now mirror God, omnipotence, and God, omniscience, and God, transcend transcendence? No, it doesn't. Suddenly, the universe is disordered in a fundamental way. In its laws, it is disordered. The problem with this, of course, is, is it's not testable. How do you demonstrate that the speed of light has been slowing down? So anytime you see a theory in science that seems to be motivated by philosophical or theological intention, steer away from it. Unlike here, you will see people are actually bumping into walls trying to deal with actual problems as they showed up. And I'm going to show you that. So, without further ado, let's begin. Let's go to the, let's go to the Greeks. The Greeks were thinking about all these issues, and they looked up and tried to deduce laws from observation. What did they see? They saw the sun moving around, and they saw... They, they, they knew of the existence of planets because the Babylonians were the first one to see those planets and they called them gods. The Greeks saw those planets and determined, well, everything seems to be turning around the earth. Therefore, the earth is the center of the universe and everything rotates around it. That's the idea. That's the observational fact that you seem to be getting from what you see. Now, oftentimes in nature, unlike modern computer science, what you see is not what you get. We know this is not reality, but that's what they saw. And in the 2nd century BC, Claudius Ptolemy took the ideas of Pythagoras and developed an extremely complicated system of 40 inner interlocking circles to explain the movements of all the planets and the sun. In computer science jargon, we call this a kludge. It's a badly put together solution. All right? But because observations seem to fit his model, that model stood unchallenged for about 16 centuries. No one challenged it because there was no need to challenge it. Everything seemed to fit. Before I move forward, I do have to say there were actually dissenters to this model. So, for instance, a man by the name of Aristarchus basically said the sun was fixed at the center of the universe. The earth revolved around the sun in a circular orbit. He was wrong on a circular orbit, but that he was close enough. He also said that the earth rotated on its axis as it revolved, and that this axis was inclined with respect to the plane of the orbit. Pretty smart guy. I don't know how he figured all that, but he did. Why didn't they go with his theory? Simple. They said, dude... If the earth is rotating on its axis, how come the stars are not moving? If the earth was rotating, you'd see what? The star twirling, right? Well, we don't. So, you're wrong. Well, the problem is, due to the distances, it's just impossible to see the stars rotating, right? They were wrong, but there was no way for them to prove it otherwise, so they went out with the other kludgy theory that stood for the longest time. Now, Copernicus about 17 centuries later, realized that astronomy could be more easily explained. Key on this word, easily explained. There is a principle that guides most scientists, most mathematicians. And as a mathematician doing my thesis, I experienced that firsthand. 
I was working on a thesis, uh, and uh, my thesis was in computational geometry and graph theory on vertex visibility graphs. It doesn't matter what it is. The point is that I was trying to prove something. My thesis was just a proof. And I was middle, in the middle of this rather complicated proof that extended over 350 pages with extremely complicated cases. And I was not happy. You know why? It wasn't beautiful. Beauty and truth are intrinsically related in math. It just was not beautiful. And towards the last semester of my studies, I found a counterexample to my proof. Now, in math, unlike many other disciplines, you don't get to express an opinion and get away with it and have a PhD. It doesn't work that way. It's right or it's wrong. Well, it was wrong. So the work of the past four years went up in smoke because I found one kind of example. But I knew I had to be done that semester. That was it. And I knew... I don't know why, but I knew there was something true there, but I just couldn't put my hands around it. So I kept working on it, kept working on it, and I would come up with a theory and then flip around, find a counterexample that would break it. So I went like this, yin and yang, yin and yang, yin and yang, all the way, all the way, all the way, till, ironically enough, the Sunday of Easter, when I found the proof. It reduced my thesis down to about 120 pages. And it was beautiful. It's music. Math is the music of the universe. It's beautiful. So that's what led Copernicus to think, wait a minute, this is kludgy. You have all these circles turning around. You know, what a salad. If I put the sun in the middle, I can make things a lot easier. That's what he went with. And he came up with his theory of the heliocentric universe. The universe was heliocentric, not our solar system, there's no such thing as a solar system, the whole universe. A century later, Kepler essentially joined the uh, an, uh, uh, prestigious obser observatory of the Danish astronomer Tycho Brahe, and for the next 16 years, he battled with Mars. You see, they were observing Mars, and we're getting all these data, and the data would not fit the description of the, of the, of the mo motion of Mars. Now, Tycho was still Ptolemaic. He believed in the 40 circles. Kepler did not. And at one point, he was, after 16 years of observation and hard work, he figured out that the problem is that Copernicus assumed that these uh, movements were actually circular, whereas they're not circular. They follow an ellipsis. So what's an ellipsis? It's a circle that had had a facelift, or maybe the opposite. You just you elongated it, right? It's a circle with two centers. It goes like this. Right? And once he did that, he was able to predict the proper movements of Mars. And that was a major success for that theory. Not only that, he established a relationship between a period of a planet and its distance from the sun. People knew, for instance, that it took Venus 225 Earth uh, days 225 days uh, to complete a full circle around the sun, full uh, period. But it took Mars 687 days. They knew that. They couldn't explain it. And he explained it in terms of the relationship of the distance of these planets to the sun. Basically what he said, called it, he called it the harmonic law, 
that the squares of the periods of any two planets are proportional to the cubes of their average distances from the sun. Not important to know exactly what the law says. What is important is there is a law. There is a law that precisely tells you why it, it takes this planet so many days to go around the sun. All right? The universe, therefore, suddenly was becoming what? Mechanical. It looked like there was this mechanic that makes the universe works. Okay, and, and we're going to encounter this when we go back and talk about biology later. This is going to be important for us. Now, Galileo showed up, and he was born in 1564, and uh, he was uh, essentially um, a very, very, very good scientist. And he was interested by, by things that fell. Why do things fall? Now, to you and I, it might seem obvious, although it isn't obvious, but you need to understand that back then, they believed what Aristotle taught. And Aristotle taught that things fall according to their nature. And their nature being what? Matter, air, fire, or uh, water. So, a rock falls to the ground because it has basically earth in it, and the natural movement of earth is to fall down. A fire falls upward. So when you light up a fire, it's falling, but it just falls upward. That was what Aristotle taught. And Galileo said, I don't buy it. Why is it that things fall? Now, there are a couple of things that he determined, which were really important, and they may surprise you. We think that the natural state of an object is to be at rest. What do we mean by that? Take a rock. We assume that the natural state of a rock is to just be there, not moving, right? But fundamentally, this is not natural. This is unnatural. The natural state of objects is constant motion. Constant motion. Well, if you observe the universe, you'd, you'd agree with me. Think of, think of Earth, think of the sun, think of the stars... Think of the galaxies. Think of everything in the universe. Everything is moving. Everything is moving. If they were to stop, we would crash. Why is the rock stopped then? That's the question. Why is it stopped? Why is it not moving? He was asking these types of questions. And he also determined something really interesting. Something that we can understand fairly easily. I'll give you... Uh, let, let, let's conduct this thought experience. It's an experience that we do in our heads. Suppose you are in a plane flying at constant speed. All the windows are closed. You're sitting in the plane. There's this guy across from you who goes, Hey, Baba, throw me the peanuts, will you? Now, you may not throw the peanuts because he seems to be a little bit rude. Or you may decide to be charitable and throw him the peanuts. So what do you do? Well, you take your trusty notebook, open it up, calculate the movement of the plane relative to the earth, the movement of the earth relative to the sun. Don't you? You don't. What do you do? You throw the peanuts. You expect the laws of physics to act 
in the plane, just as they were to act on earth. Why is that? Before you answer this question, let me change the experience on you. Suppose that this is the last day of the pilot. He's going, he's retiring. And so he decides to do a full loop with the jumbo jet. And he tells you to strap yourself, and here we go. We're going to do the full loop. And you're right in the middle of the ascending part of that loop when the guy over there calls you Bubba and asks you to throw the peanuts. Would you expect the peanuts to, the bag of peanuts in the air to behave the same way on earth? Why not? What's the difference? The difference is the acceleration. It's accelerated movement. So Galileo's intuition was that there is absolutely no no difference between a frame of reference that is at rest and a frame of reference that is in constant motion. You cannot, we cannot tell the difference. So, let's say you go on the plane and you fall asleep. While you're asleep, the plane takes off and now it's flying, it's humming. Let's say it's a very silent plane, you can even hear the engine. And there is no turbulence whatsoever and you wake up. Can you tell if you're flying or not? You can't. There is no difference between a framework that is moving at constant speed and a framework that is at rest. You want the proof? Are we moving right now? Yes. Big time. The earth is rotating at 1,300 miles per hour. Do you feel it? But you're moving. And the earth is rotating around the sun. And the sun and the galaxy are moving. And the sun and the whole solar system are moving in the galaxy, and the galaxy is moving. We are shaking. We don't feel it, do we? What you get, what you see is not what you get. Do you understand? Another important notion that Galileo captured, but we all understand it. See, you see, relativity was not the invention of Einstein. It was actually the invention of Galileo. And it's something very, very simple. Let's assume you're standing by a platform moving on rails. And the platform is moving at 10 miles per hour. Okay? And Johnny, your friend Johnny, is standing on the platform and he throws a ball. He throws the ball at 5 miles per hour. What is the speed of the ball? The speed of the ball relative to you is 15 miles per hour. You're standing still. The platform is moving at 10, and he threw the ball in the same direction. He added 5. That's 15. The ball relative to Johnny is moving at 5 miles per hour. Speed is relative to the frame of reference you're in. Anyone has a problem with this? Anyone gets confused with that notion? The speed is relative to the frame of reference you're in. Yes? Right. What does that mean? It means that the laws of physics apply in every, in every frame of reference that is, go- that is either at rest or in moving at a constant speed. No different. But if you're observing an action that is taking... 
If you're standing on one frame of reference and observing an action taking place on another frame of reference, your observation will not be, will not coincide with the observation of somebody on that frame of reference. Just as I told you earlier, Johnny sees the ball moving at 5 miles per hour, you see it moving at 15 miles per hour. You're both right. Fundamentally, you're both right. Okay. Newton was a dropout. He dropped out of school. Uh, His mom wants him to be a farmer. And thanks to his uncle, he was not a farmer, which was, in his case, a very good thing. He went home and, in one year, put forth his Newtonian system. His Newtonian system was all about the law of motion, describing motion. He came up with a bunch of laws. Okay, law number one, with no force acting, an object in motion stays in motion, and an object at rest remains at rest. Yeah? Obviously, isn't it? So, Earth keeps on moving. Right? Why does it keep on moving? Because of that first law. Right? Just in space, there's no friction, there's nothing. It's, it's the fact that it's in motion is its state at rest. In space, this is how a planet will rest when being in motion. You understand? Second law. Applying a force to an object changes its motion and more massive objects require greater force. And he came up with this famous law, F equal MA. Force equal mass times acceleration. The third law of motion, forces always come in pairs. If you apply a force to an object, the object pushes back at you with an equal and opposite force. So, example, cars. You press on the engine, the engine revs up, what makes the car move? Pardon? Why the tires on the ground make the car move? Okay. What happens is that the tires, the engine, are forcing the tire to apply a force on the ground, and the ground applies the force back, makes the car move. You want, you want to show that? You want to prove it to you? Simple. Put a car on ice. Rev that engine. Where do you go? Well, you go in circle because there's a little bit of friction, but it was perfectly flat, you would go nowhere. You just spin in place. The, the practical consequence of this is that if you have a baby carrier that is laying on a perfectly flat surface with very little friction, the best way, and the baby is in the carrier and the baby is moving, let's say the baby is, is kicking his feet, the best, the best way to keep that carrier right there is not to put the brakes on because of that law. The baby will kick, there's no friction. The, the car will move this way, and it'll come back. You put friction, you put the brakes, guess what's going to happen? The car will start moving bit by bit. Yeah, what happens is that the force is applied to the car, the car pushes back, goes nowhere. That's what I'm saying. It does not basically go to the ice. It, it's, it's basically the engine revs, right? The force is not applied to the ice because the ice is frictionless. So it, it, it becomes thermal, right? Okay, based on these laws, Newton calculated that the force 
the sun exerts on a planet is inversely proportional to the square of the distance between the sun and the planet. Beautiful. Because he figured, okay, hold on a second. Here's Earth. Earth is turning around the sun. So there is this rotation that is going on. What is rotation? It's force applied. So it's acceleration. When you turn, there is acceleration. Proof, you take a turn, what do you do? You have to slow down. If you don't slow down, you flip, right? So there's a force pushing on you when you, when you, rot when you go through a turn, right? Okay, so if that's the case, uh, the earth is turning, rotation, there is a force. What is the source of this force? Points squarely at the sun. So the sun somehow is pulling the planet. And so he sat down and calculated that. Incidentally, he didn't have the math to calculate that. So guess what he did? He invented calculus. Calculus. He just sat down and invented calculus so he can do his math. Not bad for a dropout. Okay, that's great. But how do you relate the force that pulls on a planet with a force that brings an apple down? and makes an object fall. That's the genius of Newton. Is to be able to come up with a universal law that applied to any relationship between two objects and expressed it in terms of his law of gravitation. And what, is it, what it is, sp spelled fairly simply, there is a force of attraction between all objects in the universe that is related to their masses and the distances of separation. That's it. So right now, between all of us, there are forces at play that attract everybody to everybody. But because our masses are fairly similar, you don't see anybody smacking to anybody else. One conclusion out of all of this is that Newton's universal law of gravitation explains how the universe moves. Like clockwork. Like clockwork. It's a predictable universe. Given enough computing power, you can predict the future. Given enough computing power, you can go all the way back to the past. It was a mechanical, deterministic universe. Okay? All right, that's the end of Act 1. Pretty much, we gets, gets us to Newton. Keep in mind what Galileo found out. The laws of physics apply the same in any non-accelerated frame of reference. A frame of reference is a plane, it's this church, it's the planet Earth. As long as there is no acceleration, as long as you're moving at constant speed, the laws of physics apply. Exactly the same, no different. All right? Now, we switch over to electromagnetism. The first question we ask is, what's up with electricity? So, Ben Franklin proposed that there was one kind of electricity that can be passed from one object to another... And in this case, the object passing the electricity would be left with a deficiency indicated with a negative sign, and the object receiving it would be left with an excess indicated with a positive sign. So if you ever wondered why, when you speak of electricity, we have plus and minus, you can, you can thank Ben for it. That's why. All right, in the 20th century, we discovered that electric carriers are the electrons. Remember the electrons we talked about them last time? The guys that you go to the bathroom, going and zipping around and just can't stop, right? Those guys. So, for instance, if you take a cloth and you take a wand of gold and you wipe the cloth on it, you get what? Static. Why? What happened? 
Well, very simple. What happens by wiping the cloth on that wand, you stole electrons. That's what happens. Electrons get transferred from one place to the other. We know electric charges attract or repel, right? Plus to plus don't like each other, and negative to negative don't like each other. Franklin proposed that the law of attraction is an inverse law. Why? Because they modeled it according to the law of gravity that, that Newton had found. They thought, okay, if that's, here we have a law that attracts things, and it has an inverse in it. Well, then there must be an inverse here. They didn't have any proof for it, but they just thought there must be an inverse. And uh, two years later, Charles-Augustin de Coulomb, French scientist, confirmed it and set out the mathematical rules for it. And essentially, he said that the electric force depends on the inverse of the square of the distance and depends on the product of the charges. Now, you can think of electricity as a force, but it's better to think of it as a field. Okay? As a field. So think of it as sort of more of a cloud. So when you have electricity running in the wire, it isn't just kind of confined to the wire. It runs around the wire. That's why you have, what do we call those wires now? Shielded wires. To kind of keep it in there. But, but it's more of a field. And so people started thinking, huh, Electricity has plus and minus. Magnetism, magnets have plus and minus. Electricity is a field. Magnets have a magnetic field. Is there a relationship between these two? Is there a relationship between these two? The one difference is, of course, that in electricity, you can have an object that has a positive charge and an object that has a negative charge. But a magnet has what? Both, a, a positive and a negative charge. And very recently, actually, not, not too long ago, a scientist by the name of Dirac conjectured that according to the standard model, the early universe must have had magnetic monopole, magnetic monopoles, objects, magnetic objects with one pole only. We've never been able to prove that they exist. But the, it, it's theorized that they must have existed. All right. How do you relate those two? Well, there have been a bunch of experiments that were done, namely by uh, um, a, um, um, a scientist by the name of uh, Orsted, who set up an experiment to prove that electricity and magnetism were not related. He wanted to show to his students that they were not related. What he did is that he laid a wire on a table, an exposed wire on a table, connected to electric source, and he fired it off, and he basically brought the, a um, compass and put it next to it and showed that the compass is not being affected by that wire. Right? But he was a little bit sloppy. So while he was doing his experiment, he was done with it, he took the wire with the electric field in it and brought it up next to the compass, and suddenly the compass pointed in a direction perpendicular to the wire. Then he switched the current, and the arrow turned around, still perpendicular. He actually, unwittingly, by accident, demonstrated that an electric field creates a magnetic field. An electric field creates a magnetic field. And um, within a few months of this result being published, Marie Ampère, you've, you've heard of that name, Ampère, this is the amperage, 
Yeah, Ambridge, Ampere, that's the guy. He's French also. Extended this result, describing it mathematically and proving that all forms of magnetism are generated by small electric current. All right? And the law then is that a moving electric charge or a moving electric field generates a magnetic field. Electricity generates magnetism. Okay? So that's one way. Well, if electricity generates magnetism, what about the other way around? Okay. So Faraday set up an experiment where he had an, a, a, a ring of iron. looked like a donut, a thick donut. And he, he basically um, wrapped a, an electric wire which was shielded around one side of that donut, the left side, and connected that to an electric source. Then he took another shielded electric wire and connected it to the right side of the donut by, by wrapping it around, and, and then connected that to an electrometer. And what was the intent of this experience? Let me fire up the electricity, and I just want to see electricity on the other side, because this ring has a magnetic field around it. So electricity to a magnetic field, magnetic field to electricity. That's what he wanted to do, to see. Try as he may, there was no electricity. But eventually, he noticed every time he would start that electric field, electric power, or stop it, the electrometer would twitch. And it didn't take him long to figure out that it wasn't the presence of an electric field that, gen uh, that uh, of, of the magnetic field that generated electricity. It's the switch. I'm sorry, the electric field to generate. Um, it, it wasn't the presence of the electric field. It's the actual alternation, the alternation, right? Now, at home, you plug your electric outlets into what? What, what do you call this? What do you call it, AC? Alternating current. That's what. All right? And without... And not too long ago, Henri, another scientist, effectively established the mathematical background behind this, which basically stated that a changing magnetic field generates an electric, electric current. It's the alternation of the magnetic field, the change, that generates electricity. All right? You're with me so far? Okay. Now, Maxwell, who was born in 1831, looked at all these laws. One that says electricity generates magnetism. The other one says magne magnetism generates electricity. And he being a, a very, very um, um, good mathematician, put all of those into four equations. He put all of those laws into four equations that describe precisely the relationship between electricity and magnetism. The interesting thing is that as he was putting those equations in place, doing his little experiments, he realized that he needed a couple of constants in his equations. The constants are not particularly important other than to know that they're the form of a zero followed by a decimal point, followed by about eight zeros, followed by about nine digits. And he knew he needed them for the equations to work. That's all. And eventually, he dawned on him, wait a minute. I have now electricity. The electric field generates a magnetic field, which actually, if I alternate that guy, generates an electric field. So effectively, it looks like electric field, magnetic field. Electric field, magnetic field. It looks like a wave moving. And he sat down to calculate the speed at which this wave is moving. And those two constants that seem insignificant got into the play of his equation. 
And lo and behold, what is the speed of that thing moving through space? The speed of light. Completely unrelated. There was no intention on Maxwell's part to relate this to light. It just came through the equation and he realized electromagnetism is all about light. Okay? End of Act 2. Now, Einstein shows up on stage. And there is a conundrum. There's one problem with all of this wonderful stuff. Let me back up. People were studying light since the Greek. They're trying to understand what light is. Right? What is light? The Greek suggested that light was made of particles. Particles. But, as we just saw, Maxwell established that light is what? It's a wave. Oh, people were familiar with waves back then. If you have a wave, what does it move into? Well, you know, you throw a rock, you create a wave. It moves on water. Radio waves move in what? Air. Air. Radio waves move in air. Right? Well, well, okay. A wave needs a medium to move into. What? Light is a wave, therefore there must be a medium through which light is moving. We will call this medium ether. Okay? And there were actually, you know, whole phys- you know, systems of physics built around the ether. Okay, that's cool and all. So people wanted to effectively measure the change in the speed of light as the earth moved through the ether. So the ether permeates the whole of the universe. Why? Because there's light everywhere. So ether is everywhere. Well, okay, ether is like this fog, and earth is moving in it. If earth, remember, earth rotates, right? Turns around the sun. Therefore, ether having a direction, there are times where the earth is moving in the direction of ether, and other times when it's moving against ether, right? So if earth is moving against ether, what does that mean? It's generating a wind. There's resistance, right? So therefore, there must be a way to measure, there must be a difference in the speed of light when light moves with ether and when light moves against ether. And these two guys, Morley and Michelson, set up an experiment with very, very precise measurement tools to detect the difference in speed. Well, guess what? Difference in speed? Zilch. Nothing. No difference in speed. None. That was very disturbing. It'd be like saying salmon swimming upstream swim at the same speed when a speed swim downstream. It'd be like saying a runner running against the wind runs at the same speed as a runner running with the wind. Like the wind doesn't exist. That should have been the conclusion, right? There's no ether. But how do you say there's no ether when light is a wave that needs something to move into? Well, Lorenz, a scientist, thought about this and said, oh, well, that's very simple. Well, actually, Fitzgerald first and Lorenz, both of them said this. The reason why you can't measure a difference is because when when an object moves, it shrinks. Yeah, that's what they said. When an object moves, it shrinks. And Lawrence explained that in terms of elasticity. Remember, we're made out of molecules, right? 
So there's space between the molecules. And there's also, within the molecule, you have an electron running around the, the nucleus. Right? And if you flatten this, you shrink an object. Now, that, that was thought to be a mathematical construct to make the thing work, but it has nothing to do with reality. It's just a mathematical construct to make, to make the thing work. Not only that, in France, um, Jules-Henri Poincaré, who was a, a, a prominent mathematician, I always chuckle at his name. His name means uh, square point. No wonder he was in math, right? Thought that there must be a general principle of relativity. He asked Lorentz to generalize his equation, and he came up with an even weirder result. Lorentz, not only does space contract, but a moving clock would tick slower than a clock at rest. Time dilates. Space contracts, time dilates. That's what Lorentz came up with. All right? Of course, no one thought that any of this applied to reality. At an International Congress of Science in St. Louis in 1904, Poincaré gave a clear and simple description of relativity. It was an extension of the law of Galileo to include all laws of physics. All right? they, they needed this to make sure that you maintain the law of Galileo that we talked about. The laws of physics apply in every non-accelerated frame of reference. And he concluded his lecture by saying that this is still an unrealized hope and conjecture to be able to really work this out. They thought this is a very tough problem to crack. Well, just a year later, the inexperienced 26-year-old and unknown Albert Einstein would make this unrealized hope a reality. So Einstein was also working on this whole issue. Now, here's the problem he was facing. He wanted to generalize the law of Galileo, which implied to, to mechanical movements, to include electromagnetism. However, according to Maxwell, according to Maxwell, if a magnet moves over an electric wire, a magnetic field is generated, but not the other way around. If you keep the magnet in place and you move the wire, you don't generate a magnetic field. Well, think about it. Suppose you are on a rail that has electric wires at... at, at um, at regular intervals, and you bring a magnet with you inside the rail, and you close everything. And you go to sleep, and you wake up, and you want to know if you're moving or not. Well, check your magnet. If a magnetic field is created, you're moving. If it isn't, you're not. So there is, after all, a way to tell if you're moving or you're not, without having to compare it to another reference point. In other words, there is absolute movement. And Einstein did not like this, because it wasn't beautiful. It did not preserve the law of Galileo. You understand the problem he was dealing with? Somehow, electromagnetism was breaking the law of Galileo that said that all laws of physics apply in every non-accelerated frame of reference. That's what he was dealing with. So he started, with the first, he started with the first postulate, the first law that says, the physical laws of nature are the same in every non-accelerated frame of reference. The physical laws of nature are the same in every non-accelerated frame of reference. Does this sound relative to you? Is that a relative postulate? Or is it absolute? Absolute, doesn't it? 
Let me tell you what the theory relativity is saying. It is saying the church is right. You want me to show you? What does the church say? The church teaches that the truth of theology and morality are true in every cultural frame of reference. Correct? What changes? Pastoral application. The way, you, the way you apply those truths change based on the cultural context you're in. But the truth does not change. That's what he was saying for nature. The laws of nature apply in every non-accelerated frame of reference. What changes are the values you get from one frame to the other. He's not, he was not saying that all oh, everything is relative. He's actually saying everything is absolute. He's saying the opposite of what people want you today to believe he said. So by making motion relative and not absolute, motion is always relative to something else, he thought to himself, if that's the case, I can get rid of the ether. I don't need the ether. It's a construct. So he threw it out. Quite bold for a 26-year-old. Just throw the construct that most physicists were using. He said, no, I don't need it. Gone. Okay, so the ether is gone. Now, by plugging this hole, he created another one. He had a problem, the speed of light. The speed of light is 300,000 kilometers a second or 186,000 miles a second. With respect to what? You threw the ether out before you had the ether. Now it's gone. What do you do with that? Answer, with respect to everything. The speed of light is 300,000 kilometers a second, 186,000 miles a second, in every frame of reference and across frames of reference. Let me explain. Let me explain. I am, so Johnny is on that train, and this time he's not throwing a ball, he's holding a uh, light, um, a flashlight. And you're standing on the ground. The train is moving at 100,000 miles a second. And Johnny flashes that light. According to our initial intuition, Johnny should see the light moving at 186 miles a second. You should see the light standing on the ground, looking at it. You should see the light moving at 286 miles a second. And Einstein says, uh-uh. Both of you see the light moving at exactly the same speed. You understand what he said? The speed of light is the same across frames of reference. It does not change. It does not change. Okay. Why? Well, the speed of light is a law of nature. We determined that the speed of light was this much. It's a law of nature. According to the principle of Galileo, every law of nature works the same across all non-accelerated frames of reference. Therefore, the speed of light should be constant. Okay, that's great. Now, what are the consequences? Okay. Let's conduct this experiment now. Let's assume, for the purpose of this conversation, the speed of light is one foot a second. It just helps us with the experiment, okay? And let's assume that Tina and Marge are two friends with identical light clocks. The light clocks consist of a tube with two laser beams, one on the bottom, one on the top, and two mirrors. The laser beam, the tube, is one foot long. And the clock works like this. The bottom laser 
uh, uh, gun fires up a laser beam that hits the top mirror, which then triggers the top laser gun to fire another laser beam that hits the bottom mirror, which then triggers the bottom laser gun to fire up a laser beam that hits the top mirror, and you're, you're getting the picture, right? So every time a laser beam hits a mirror, how, how, um, what's the period of time that went by? One second, because we're saying the speed of light in our little world here is one foot a second. You're with me? Okay. Now, Tina takes her clock, her trusty light clock, on a platform, on a train platform, and Marge is standing on the ground with her trusty light clock. Okay? And Tina is where the train starts, far away. Let's say a thousand feet away from where Marge is. And let's assume that right when... Tina gets to the thousand foot. The bottom laser gun on her clock fires up. The train is moving as one foot a second. Okay? So, the train was at a thousand foot when the bottom gun fired. Where's the train when the laser gun hits the, the top mirror? One thousand and one. It moved one foot, right? And where's the train when the laser, the top laser hits, the, the laser beam coming from the top hits the bottom mirror? 1,002, right? From Marge's perspective, standing on the ground, what is the shape of the movement of that laser beam? It's diagonal, isn't it? Because it started at 1,000 foot from the bottom, it hit the top mirror when the train was at 1,001. That's a diagonal. And then it went back this way. You're with me? Everybody? It's a diagonal, like this. Her trusty clock standing by herself also registered those two seconds, but in a direct line, straight. Right? A, a V, a reversed V, a straight line. With a little bit of geometry, you figure that that reversed V is longer than the straight line. Trust me on this. You can sit down to the geometry. It's very, very simple. You understand what's going on? So, within these two seconds, the light clock on the train did a reverse V, whereas the light clock on the ground did a straight line. Two seconds... Longer distance on the train than on the ground. You're with me? What's the problem? The speed of light is constant. To every frame of reference. Across frame, frames of reference. What did the two clocks register? Two seconds. So, the speed of light, light going with the same speed, during the same period of time was able to cross a longer distance on that train than on the ground. You understand the problem? So, Tina and Marge sit down and think it through, and they're so upset that they start crying. And Einstein shows up and says, don't cry for this, Marge and Tina. I'm going to solve that for you. If the speed of light is constant, what happens to time? Simple. The clock on that train was ticking slower 
than the clock on the ground. You understand? Okay. That seems to be a mind bender, but actually it isn't. It's not that difficult. Here's the problem that we have. In our brain, we have a representation of the universe that works like this. We have a three-dimensional, right? Length, width, and height. Representation of space. And next to it stands time that ticks according to an absolute clock. And the two shall never meet. What Einstein is saying is that this is not how the universe works. The reality of the matter is that the universe is much more, much more connected than that. Time and space are very much connected. And speed impacts both. The faster you go, the slower your clock ticks. Now, according to who? According to somebody watching you. According to you, your clock is ticking normally. You don't see the difference. It's just clicking. Why? Because the laws of Galileo. Right? The laws of physics apply in every frame of reference. So, according to your frame of reference, time is working normally. It's the clock on the other side that's going completely crazy. And the other thing, space contracts in the direction of motion. Space contracts in the direction of motion. So space, time, energy, light are connected, and they impact each other. That's what he's saying. Now, in his general theory, he extended what he found. This is called the special theory. He extended that to his general theory of relativity to include accelerated frames of reference, not just non-accelerated ones. And as a result, he figured out what gravity is. So picture this. You have a sheet of plastic that is stretched at its four corners. You take a bowling ball and you drop it in the middle. What happens to that sheet of plastic? It just curves in, doesn't it? Now you take a little pebble and you put it on the sheet of plastic. What's going to happen to it? It's just going to roll, right, because of the incline towards that big bowling ball. Right? Well, mass is to that bowling ball what the sheet of plastic is to the universe. Mass warps the universe. So where the sun is, picture that the sun is sitting in a big bowl. And earth is the pebble. What is earth to do? It's to roll, naturally it will roll over because of the incline towards the sun. But because of its own motion, being at rest, it will keep on falling towards the sun the way it is right now, without ever leaving its orbit. So what is gravity? Geometry. Gravity is geometry. It's the geometry of the space. Why don't we notice any of that stuff? Well, they've done experience with very, very uh, um, sensitive clocks where they had a clock on the ground and a clock in a jumbo jet. And they got that clock in a jumbo jet to fly around for about uh, a number of hours. When it came back down, they compared the two clocks. And the clock in the jumbo jet was uh, ticking slower by about uh, zero point. Nine zeros in one second. There's a difference. But we don't feel it because our scale is so small. You have to go to a real fraction of the speed of light to see the difference. That's why. So within our own universe, within our own world, the laws of Newton apply just fine. Thank you very much. 
But when you look at the macrocosmos, that's when this kicks in. Alright, so what does this all have to do with Genesis? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning one day. The one thing I want to attract your attention to is that the reference of the day here, is it earthbound? Is that an earthbound reference? No, it's cosmic. Right? So what is the frame of reference here? Cosmic. I shall point out something to you that we're going to come back to and revisit, which is very interesting. It's very curious. Notice what Scripture says. And there was evening and there was morning. In this order, one day. Why not? And there was morning and there was evening. What you think about that? Okay? Getting back to it. This is kind of really interesting. But we'll take, up, we'll take that up later. Right now, I want to point out something to you. The reference is cosmic. So, let's now picture a photon, which is a particle of light, zipping through space. That thing goes at the speed of light. What happens to time when you're going at the speed of light? Time stops. So, let's say light is coming to us from a galaxy that is about, uh, I don't know, 10, 10 billion light years away. A light year is the distance that would take light to, uh, that is the distance that light crosses in one terrestrial year. Right? So, these are huge distances. So, it came to us from 10 billion years ago. 10 billion, uh, the 10 uh, billion light years. It's a, a lot more than, than 10 billion years, right? It's a lot of years. What, for, for, that, for that photon, what kind of time went by? It's in, instantaneous, as far as it's concerned. There wasn't even a second that ticked when a photon showed, showed up here. Okay? So consider now the Big Bang when it started. The universe is expanding at near the speed of light. Mass is being ejected at near the speed of light. And imagine you're riding on one of those protons, zipping through space. And think about how long, how many years would go by, right? No. And, and now, let's assume you had a terrestrial observer standing here, looking at that proton moving through space, okay? And calculating the number of years on Earth equate, that would equate to 24 hours for that proton. When you do a little bit of calculation, you find out it's 8 billion years. 8 billion years. So this one evening and one morning, one day, 8 billion years on Earth. Now the rate of expansion of the universe is, follows an inverse... Um, it decreases exponentially. So the second day, second day, four billion years. The third, two. The fourth, one. The fifth, half. The sixth, a quarter. Total all that up, 13.75 billion years. I don't know how to count. 
He said, totally, the total was 13.7 billion, but in fact, it's 15.7 billion. And where's the discrepancy coming from? Well, really, the discrepancy comes from that I was base, basing it on an older framework. Okay, the way you calculate this is um, by figuring out how the microwave background radiation, which is the signature of the Big Bang, has been stretched. Right, so this is a wavelength. It's a wave. And if you imagine holding a wave in your hand, and if the universe is actually expanding, then this wave is going to get stretched. That stretching is related to something we call the redshift, and you can use that to determine how fast the universe grew. And so based on those calculations, it so happened that it maps to 15.75 billion years. Well, today we know a little bit better, and it's actually 13.7. The mapping still works, but it's not as elegant. It isn't a pure exponential or inverse. All right, that's where the discrepancy comes from. Six days, 13.75 billion years. Which one is true? Both. Can we hold to a literal interpretation of scripture? You bet. Absolutely. We don't have to tweak it. We don't have to create fancy stuff. Can we hold to a to the standard model? Absolutely. Are they contradicting each other? Not at all. Not at all. A couple more observations on that verse based on this lecture and the previous one. I told you, you know, earth here doesn't just mean earth, land. It means really land. It means matter. Okay, and I'll show that to you when we go through a little bit more of Hebrew. Uh, was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And then there was, let there be light. Remember in the standard model, I told you that around 300,000 years, the light, I mean, the energy was so high that all the wavelengths were very short for light, so it was actually dark. And it took a time for the universe to cool down for the spectrum of light that we can see to actually show up. And that's when there was light. Okay? Again, can I read scripture literally? Yeah, I can. Absolutely. It takes some work. It takes us engaged with the science. With the sciences out there. But it doesn't mean that we have to let, we have to let go of scripture. Or do we have to tweak the science to fit scripture? And God was moving over the face of the waters. And I told you that they're seeing right now that that plasma was not actually a gas. It was more like a pure water. It's really interesting. Now, we do this with a cautious hand. I don't need science to convince me of the truth of Scripture. I don't. I'm just doing this to help, especially those who are faced with the juggernaut of the university where they go there and they are told, all that stuff you learn, this old church, you know, superstition, one hang on power. Now we're going to give you and enlighten you with the truth of science that changes every 12 years. <laughs> and you're going to believe in dark energy and dark matter because, of course, it's a lot easier to believe in those things than believe in angel. We can't prove them. We can't see them. We, can't, we, can, we don't know what that thing is. But And, oh, by the way, don't worry. If you don't like it, probably will change in 12 years from now. But believe in it. Let go of your faith. 
You understand? That's what you guys are faced with. And the problem, I'm talking here mostly to the youth, and the problem is that you have not been given the tools you need to understand that your faith is rational. Does faith transcend reason? Absolutely. Is that surprising? No. Do you know a lot of guys who would sit down and prove to you mathematically that love exists? So you meet a guy who says, I love you, I'm going to prove it to you. Theorem. I love you. Proof. QED. What do you do if you met a guy like this? Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Right? Does this, mean, does, this, does, does this mean that love is irrational? Is that what love is? Let's just throw away our brains and run in the fields and smell the roses. Well, it's wonderful to smell the roses. And then how are we going to pay the bills? Are you going to do the dishes for me? If we have a baby, will you change the diapers? Is love irrational? Not at all. Love is rational. But is it only rational? No. It goes beyond. What is it? It's a mystery. Love is a mystery. What is a mystery? It isn't something to be solved. It is something to be contemplated. That's why you have two people who are in love. What do they do? They sit, and sometimes they just look at each other. Why are they doing that? Is it that they're trying to figure out the, uh, you know, the, the, the <laughs> configuration of the skins? Because there's a mystery that is being contemplated. Faith is like that. Because faith is nothing more than falling in love. That's all. I don't need to go through all this exercise. Believe me, I don't have to do all that stuff for me. Because when you encounter the Lord Jesus Christ, you don't need any of that stuff. The problem is, you live in a world where people want you to believe that this is a myth. And that's why I'm going through this pain to show you that with a little bit of work and a little bit of courage, you can actually come up with an edifice that shows that our faith is harmonious with the science. does not need the science to be built. It's built on the rock of the church, but is harmonious with the science. Do you understand? Remember that next time that your faith is challenged by those who do not believe. And also remember that no matter what they say to you, they're on much shallower grounds than you are because you are standing on the shoulders of giants. Read the saints. They are standing on their shoes. They got nothing to stand on. Very good. So, what we're going to do next time is hit yet another theory, which we have to cover for the same reasons. It's even more pernicious in one sense, and it is quantum theory. Quantum theory. We're going to touch upon quantum theory to just to understand what it is and what the problems surrounding it and how this relates to Genesis. And then after that, we'll go back to Scripture for a little while, and then we'll take a dive into evolution, the theory of evolution. And hopefully, within four or five lectures hence, we'll be back into Scripture. But I think these are important topics that we have to cover so that we understand that there is a way to read Scripture and be at peace with what the science is saying today.
Questions? Oh, yes, E equal mc squared. What Einstein succeeded in doing is showing that, well, before Einstein, they knew that there was equivalence between any, all forms of energy, thermal, mechanical, etc. They're all energy. So I didn't go into the laws of thermodynamics because they really deal with quantum theory. But the idea is that you, don't gen you can't create new energy. There's energy, you can transform it, but at the end of the day, you still have the same amount of energy. E equal mc squared extends that to mass, matter. It shows that matter is actually a form of energy. Okay? And incidentally, it's very, very interesting, again, to think about the words of the Lord and the words of St. John, uh, St. Paul. What did Jesus say? Of all the material things there are, what did he say about himself? Did he say, I am earth? Did he say, I'm air? Did he say, I am fire? What did he say? I'm the light. What did St. Paul say about the Lord? Jesus Christ is the same today, yesterday, forever. The speed of light is constant. Isn't that beautiful? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, well, first of all, through the... Uh, theory of Einstein, because he included those into his theory. And the time dilation, as I mentioned earlier, has been proved in multiple ways. One is these two clocks I told you about. The other one is the, is the neutrinos. The neutrinos are particles that are known to live a very, very short period of time. And they happen in the stratosphere of Earth. And there simply is not enough time for them to reach the center of the Earth. And right now, as we speak, there are millions of neutrinos going through us. How is it possible for them to make it from the stratosphere to here when they live about 2.3 minutes? Time slows. Okay? There are multiple um, observations that concur with the theory of relativity. Now, is that the final word? I don't think so. There's still some really question, the real fundamental questions we have not yet completely answered. So, expect it to change. Yes? Okay, time travel. All right, time travel. Can we travel in time? Yeah, yes, 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 yes. No, that's not what they got the idea of time travel. Why is time going in one direction only? Well, if you look at all the laws of physics, every single law of physics that we know of can work in case you consider time moving backward. All of them except one, the infamous second law of thermodynamics. The infamous second law of thermodynamics, entropy. We're going to talk about entropy later, right? Here's how you can see why this will not work. Imagine you have a container filled with gas, and there's another container next to it which is empty. And you have a video camera. You puncture the, the, the separating wall, and gas starts to escape from one container into the other, and you're filming it. Right? You film for about 10 seconds and you stop the film. And you want to play a trick on your friends. You show them the film backward. Hmm? Everybody will tell you it's in reverse. Everybody knows there's no way gas works this way. Why? Because the second law of thermodynamics says what? Heat transfers always from heat to cold. Never from cold to heat. Okay? And that establishes the 
arrow of time firmly towards the future. Now, there is one caveat to this involving, involving, um, well, involving black holes and worms. Worms, worms. The idea is if you have these things called worm, which is effectively a puncture in the, in the, in the fabric of space, which connects two different points in, in space-time, not just space, space-time. So if you could bring that thing close to a black hole on one side only, the black hole will effectively slow down its rotation. So you can actually tr travel towards the future in one direction. But because you're getting the part that is in the past to turn slowly, you can come back to the past. So there is theoretically a device that allows you to go to the future. What if that's the case, somebody in the future could go the other way around, right? So theoretically, it is possible to travel in time. There is one problem with this. Where are the tourists? Where are they? Where are the folks from the third millennium, 3,222? How come they're not here taking pictures? So, eh, I don't think it'll ever work, but theoretically, according to our understanding of physics today, it is possible. Yeah, maybe those are the tourists from the future, I don't know. You cannot have, well, I'm sorry, you cannot have renewable energy. Oh, 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 no, 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 wait a minute. You cannot have a pure renewable energy as an energy that would always sustain itself. There's no such thing as eternal motion, yes. Well, when they talk about renewable energy, they talk about renewable energy with respect to our context, like wind and the sun. Within our, our lifetime, our, our time span, it is renewable. So, but absolutely, no, you cannot. But we'll get to the theory of entropy, I mean, the second law of thermodynamics later, when we deal with the biology. Yes, any other question? Yes? Did you read about the Templeton Prize? Yes, I that's the scientist. Yeah. Yeah. That's the priest I was talking about. Father McCall. I think they, they said his name is Michael. Yeah, Heller. That's the priest who got the Templeton Prize. And he is uh, he holds a PhD in physics. And his central theme in one of the books you can find on Amazon is precisely why are there mathematical laws? He goes to the heart of the problem. Yes, how come there are mathematical laws that explain the universe? See, that's the signature of God. All right, let's finish with a word of prayer. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Corbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.corbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.